Two years ago, um, my family and I went on vacation to the Gulf Coast, and I hadn't been to that uh, particular coast in a long time, although I grew up frequently going there with my family uh, growing up in Alabama. And um, one of the things um, uh, that I, came to mind the closer we got to the coast was my anticipation of just seeing the ocean and seeing the Gulf. I don't know if you're like that, uh, but it reminded me of a lot of... Um, uh, things that, as a young kid, Highway 79, as I went with my parents, just my mom would, um, would uh, say, we're about to see the ocean, we're about to see the ocean. And I couldn't wait. And as you got to the coast, there were uh, buildings in the way, right, and high-risers and to try to see it between. But just something about finally seeing the ocean. And there it is, and the waves crashing. Uh, and at the same time as my mother took me, which she loved to do, we, we had to have a, um, a, a coast side, a water side place to stay because she wanted to be able to see and and um, hear the ocean the whole time, uh, no matter what. Uh, but at the same time, I would get the same speech, um, which was Shane, and I was on the swim team, was a strong swimmer, was tall. She's like, I know you think you're a strong swimmer, but the ocean is stronger. And remember that. And, uh, and so there was always this warning that came with the coast. Beauty, and yet warning of kind of uh, its power. And, um, and you know what it's like when you get there, uh, as we did a couple of years ago, uh, I went through the kind of the same experience. I couldn't wait to see the beauty, and I had the same speech for my children. Um, no matter how good a swimmer you think you are, the ocean is stronger, and it can get you, no matter if there's a, a blue flag or whatever it may be. And yet, while you're there, what always is usually the case, uh, never fails, even if you're there for a week, and I've lived there multiple summers working with a college ministry, we'd stay there for months at a time or a month at a time, is that once you get there, you, uh, uh, unfortunately, the coast or the ocean gets a little familiar, and you just don't recognize its beauty. You get used to it a little much and uh, too soon, which we do. I, dr I live on a beautiful street, and I forget that. And why is that? Because it becomes familiar. Uh, and at the same time, I also lose sight oftentimes while you're swimming and playing in it that, the, that how really powerful uh, the ocean is. Um, and this trip two years ago, I lost sight of the beauty until a storm came and kind of reminded me, oh, I love to look at the ocean. But then one day it was a red flag, and in my arrogance, uh, which we love to be in the ocean and get out in the waves and break and the kids and boogie board, and we go out a little far, and immediately I say to the boys, I'm like, ah, y'all go back to the, uh, to the, uh, back on, 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 to the sand and to the beach. And I'm starting to realize the undertow, and there's a rip current, and it's really, really strong. And we're probably from me to Kevin. It's not too far out. I mean, we're not, the waves aren't breaking, but I realize it is really, really strong. And Hadley is from me to the Advent candles away from me. And then all of a sudden, I realize I can't move, and neither can she. I'm like, sweetheart, we need to get out. It's worse than I thought. And at the same time, some of the, uh, the lifeguards are driving on their vehicles saying, out, out, like it's a really, really bad red flag today, not just one in your arrogance. And she could not get to me about 10 feet away. And the helplessness and the powerlessness I felt in that. So I had talked to them about uh, rip currents. You know, you had to kind of swim with them. And so I, I, she, couldn't, she could not move. She's a 15-year-old and athletic. And I couldn't, I was confident I wasn't sure I could help her. And uh, in the Lord's goodness, we worked, walked with it. We walked parallel. And I said, we just got to walk with it and walk parallel. You keep going, keep going. And we worked our way to the ocean. But I remember coming back, uh, worked our way to the, to the shore and just being... Um, Humbled, shaking at how close she might have just could have fallen, and even me. And um, uh, the ocean had become too familiar. 
and I had lost sight of its um, beauty and of its power. And, um, and we do that with the gospel and with God himself. And so what I hope to do to kick off the new year is just look at a very familiar passage and let God re, uh, reorchestrate our hearts to the beauty and the power of who he is. So let me pray. God, would you um, uh, let us take this oh-so-familiar oh passage, and, and yet it is your living and active word, and would you uh, reorient our minds and our hearts to the beauty of who you are and the gospel and what it, the truths of it in this, this one passage with Isaiah. And Lord, we confess that we are prone to wonder so easily. And what we, the exercise that we do today, together, if you will, in this service, is the exercise that we need all the time. We lose sight of really beautiful, how the majesty of, your, uh, of who you are and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of grace and how amazing it is. And at the same time, we lose sight of just how holy and other and different you are. So, Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, may we see you again in a way that this table is, is so sweet that we get to eat with the king. And be at your table. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so as we come to the prophet Isaiah here, contextually, just a couple of things going on. We're just going to work through the passage, and I'm going to walk you through it, and we'll, we'll highlight. Now, uh, what I want you to also know, this passage is one that uh, I go through in communicates class. So young guys and young girls and guys, and we, we work through this one and, and see, see that this is a passage when in one sense we can kind of see all the fullness of the gospel. Let me remind you this morning that the gospel is individualistic in its nature, that God saves individuals, and it's corporate in its nature, that he's saving a people, and the kingdom of God is advancing in a way where uh, he will bring renewal to his people, to the globe. There will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and the earth will be restored. So it's physical and spiritual, and it's corporate that a people he's saving. But the way people are brought into this corporate kingdom movement, what God's doing is about an individual encounter with God. And what we see here is a window into that. And although uh, John Calvin says the Bible is a story, uh, as oftentimes one of its roles is to be a mirror to show us who we are and to show us our sin and its perfection of who God is, one of the maybe a good way to think about uh, the, um, the Bible is to also say that it's a window. That it's really, a, the Bible is primarily a story for you, but it's not about you. Okay, let me say that again. The Bible is primarily a story for you, and it's not about you. So gospel is actually, the word evangel is a word of declaration of a reality that is true. That there is a good news, and there is a God, and who he is. So as you see this passage this morning, may you and I look at it through the window of the Bible and say, I am seeing a part of the story, and God's saving and working in one of his saints. And this is, that's for us to see, but it's not about me. It's about the one who's doing the saving. It's about the one who's revealing himself. And that's what we need to be reoriented to. We need, we forget, we're prone to lose sight of the ocean, if you will, 
and the grandeur of who grandeur of who it is. So one way to think about this, this isn't the only way you can summarize the gospel for an individual, but is we sometimes we use, I use it with our communicants, is we have to answer four questions. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Jesus? And what is the right response to the person of Jesus? All right? So that's a good way to even read and study the Bible. You can study passages and say, what did I learn about God? Maybe what did I learn about myself? What did I learn about Jesus uniquely? And what should I, how should I respond to that? Uh, so we're going to, this passage covers all those questions. We're going to work through those. We're going to see God. We're going to see ourselves. We're going to see uh, what he's, um, Jesus, and then we'll see uh, a beautiful response. So let's work through it. In verse 1, the year King Uzziah died. So one of the things that's letting us know here is just a history lesson of King Uzziah, who he is. He's one of the kings of the uh, southern kingdom. And he is, uh, um, <laughs> excuse me, I kind of got choked uh, there. He is a king who, uh, what we know, uh, he has died. But one of the reasons he's died, he's died of leprosy. And some think what happened was is that he uh, took uh, liberty upon himself to actually try to execute one of the offices of a priest. So God governed his people in the Old Testament by prophet, priest, and kings. Those were the offices of leadership. He was a king, and he somehow, in his arrogance, decided to go into the temple and execute some of the office, uh, execute some of the roles of the priest. And God said, he's, he's got leprosy and he's going to die. So in his arrogance, he enters into this temple, in a sense. Now, also, then notice, so that's the king who has died. And, uh, but then he says, I saw the Lord. Now, did, did, did Isaiah uh, literally see um, the Lord? No, this is a vision. All right? He sees him in his vision. There's a reason for that. And we'll see that in a minute. But when people so nonchalantly say that they had walked with God in a garden or saw him today or seen, see them, you should be suspicious of that. Because even those who encounter angels in the Bible, the first thing the angel has to say is fear not because of the presence of who they are. And for you and I to actually see God, you and I wouldn't make it. It would be far worse than an undertow to pull me out into the ocean. To be in the presence of God would not be something we encounter. So even God is merciful right here from the beginning that I'm going to show myself to Isaiah, but I'm going to show myself through a vision. Why? Because I know who I am and I know who you are. And you can't handle presence and the beauty. The beauty is so overwhelming that it would destroy them. So he sees the Lord, and we answered the first question here in the verses 1 through 4 of who is God in that. And he sees the Lord. The word Lord there is Adonai, which is usually the means sovereign one, ruling one. Uh, that's the word, the name he chooses to use. It was the, use, it was the word or the name of God that was often replaced Yahweh because they didn't want to say the word Yahweh because it was the presence of God. They didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. God's people had an idea of using the Lord's name and reverence in the temple. So this is a temple thought. And he says that he sees the Lord, Adonai, reigning. So it means sovereign one in the place of ruling. And where is he? He's sitting upon a throne. That, has, that imagery has huge implications. What does that mean that God does? He is king and he rules. And he's always sitting upon his throne. What do kings do? They rule. Where is God? He is on his throne. Let me just pause right there and say, today, no matter where you find yourself, no matter what you don't believe or believe, no matter what brokenness, what you're encountering, God is on his throne. He never leaves it. He never stops ruling. Even over the bad things in our lives. Even over sin 
As one of the founders of our denomination said, God says, and I remember saying, I remember being a 20-year-old trying to figure out what in the world, how does God remain sovereign and there will be sin in the world? And he says, God rules over sin in such a way that he has nothing to do with it. Remains perfectly holy and not the, not the author of it. And yet it is under his dominion. He's God, you're not. The ocean's big and you're not. And I'm not. But he's on his throne. It implies that he's king. And maybe Uzziah had lost sight of that. And he comes to Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah, this is more of a humbling experience. But God is, uh, if you think back to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a little bit more of an insecure prophet, the weeping prophet. He struggled with all these inward struggles. And the God comes to him and says, kind of shake your chains off and believe I am good. And then you have Isaiah, who was of noble birth and that. And the Lord seems to put him in his place a little. But nevertheless... Jeremiah was self-absorbed, and so was Isaiah. At some level, have a tendency, whether you're insecure or, or wrongly secure and confident, you're not on the throne. He is. And then he says that he's high and he lifted up. Uh, and the train, high and lifted up. What does that phrase mean? It's not used much in the Bible, that phrase is. Over the years, I've looked at it. I think what it's trying to say is there's kings, and he's the high king. He's the exalted king. When I'm with the kids, we talk about uh, king of the mountain. You ever played that? Who's the, who's the king of kings? Who's at the highest point? That's the goal of the game. You get up and throw you down. He, there's kings, but this king is high and exalted. What you can conclude is that there is no other king ruling. This king is the one who is above all other kings. And he's high and exalted. This throne is the highest throne, the one that is ruling. And then it says the train of his robe is filling the temple. What beautiful imagery. What powerful imagery. Listen, in ancient times, the robe of the king oftentimes symbolized his majesty and his power, particularly his power. It was kind of like a peacock. When a king would enter into the throne room of where he was, this being the temple of God, which, by the way, has great implications, that it's a temple that he sees in, and where his kindness and his goodness and his rule has no end, um, ancient kings' robes pointed to the power. So one of the ways you can imagine them entering the room would be that their robe would be long so that to signify, I have many nations I rule, and I have great power. It was... Uh, Kind of a glory kind of contest or power, maybe strutting, if you will, for the kings. Maybe similar to us, right, that we see uh, at weddings. Um, when we see the, the, the great train of the dress of a woman accenting her beauty as she walks the aisle, that we, we see this and it's, the idea is to take our eyes and to see her beauty. There's a fullness of it. I'm always mindful of the sound of music. If, the, if you ever seen that movie at the end when Maria is married and she's in that great cathedral and it looks down and her, uh, her dress is the whole length of the cathedral. And it was beauty, right? Well, this is what, this is a king in his robe. What is it about it? It fills the temple. It's without end. It's eternal. What is that telling us about this king? It means this, that his power was without end. It fills the temple. It just keeps filling it. His power is forever. It's eternal. It's without boundaries. That's who this king is. When you try to put that in your mind, eternal, do you ever try to think about what eternal means? The idea of eternity, that's something for us that we can't comprehend. I've loved illustrations over the years that try to help me, right? If you were to take uh, an ant and say he was placed at the equator of a metal ball the size of the earth. You take an ant, a real ant, and you put it on this... Uh, metal ball, and you put that ant at the equator, 
And however long it would take for that ant to walk around the equator of a metal ball the size of the earth and wear out a path to cut that ball in half, that wouldn't be the first day of eternity. Or even the first glimpse of our understanding of power. If you were to think about a small sparrow that had to fly and take one gulp of the Atlantic Ocean take it to the Pacific and empty out the Atlantic, which I know they're connected don't worry about it but the, <laughs> but to move the ocean one big and fly however many thousands of miles across our coast the other coast that wouldn't be the first day of the eternal living God, he is beyond that his power is without end. There's no end to his eternal and um, reigning infinite, infinite power. And above him stood seraphim. The seraphim each has wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim, they are angels of the Lord. They're, notice that, that he's referred to as the Lord of hosts. And this God... has basically his highest ranking Lord of hosts within the army of the Lord are the angels, and they are, they are around the throne room. Sometimes the kids were, were talking about it, and I said, think secret service around the president. All right, We don't know a whole lot about angels. I can't get into my theology of angels, but it's pretty cool what it is, but what the theology of angels is. But these are perfect beings around God, the highest ranking, maybe around the throne room. The word seraph in the Hebrew uh, it, it has, lends itself to the idea of fire or burning. We don't know much about it, but they're around the throne room. And notice what they're doing. They have, they have three sets of wings or six wings, and they have three sets, and they're around God's throne room. And notice what it says. It says, with two wings, they cover their faces, and with two wings, they cover their feet, and with two wings, they're flying. Listen, theologians have guessed and are trying to figure that out over. I'm going to offer two or three to you. There's more. But they think, what do these mean? Why are they covering their faces? Why are they doing it? There's all kinds of reasons. Let me give you just a the first one uh, is this, is that the feet, why would they cover their feet? That makes sense, right, in a culture where Jesus washed feet. Feet are dirty. Most cultures to this day, feet are dirty. And that particularly then, the idea of washing feet was a humble act. So it makes sense that in the presence of God, what might symbolize dirtiness must be covered. We kind of get that, right? But then you have the face. What is the face? The face is the essence of the person, right? But these are sinless beings, and whatever they are, they can't even themselves look upon this God. Why? Because he's different than them. He's so other in that, and they're covering. It could be thought of, some have thought that maybe the goodness of even their sinless beings, that even the goodness of who they are has to be covered before God. So that's the gospel, folks. Our goodness and our sins have to be covered. For the wages of sin is death. For all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Even these perfect beings can't be in his glory. We all fall short of that. But our goodness and whatever you think is good about yourself, it cannot be in the presence. And by the way, we are sinners. And we do bring our sin before that. And then the other set of wings, which are flying, some think it shows their readiness to obey God. There's all kinds of things. But it probably, draw, I think, draws attention Remember when Moses, what did God tell him to do when he met him on Mount Sinai? To take off your shoes. You can't touch this ground. You're making, this ground is holy. 
think about this ground differently. Some think that maybe they were hovering because they couldn't touch the very floor of the temple where he was. And so what are they doing? They're declaring something holy. They're singing back and forth. We don't know how many, some think two, or how many it is, whatever. But they're singing a word, holy. That in the Hebrew, uh, it, it's not something that why they say holy, holy, holy. Why are they saying this word? This word means to be set apart. What does it mean to be different, to be perfect? Uh, it carries itself. It's a word with a broad scope uh, in, in the Hebrew. But it, it, <laughs> the idea to be set apart, meaning this idea that there's, whole, there's fathers, but he's a holy father. There's love, but his love is a holy love. It's other. It's perfect. It's without, it's without uh, it's so different, <laughs> if you will, that it can't be described. And that's why we believe he says it three times. Some think that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I don't think Calvin actually believes that. But magnitude in their language, and particularly in the Aramaic, was not, magnitude of something was not communicated uh, like we do with voice inflection or emphasis. It oftentimes was emphasized, things were emphasized by something being repeated. And so that's why Jesus would say, verily, verily, I stand to you. They were emphasizing something. Um, as a matter of fact, there's few places in the Bible like, uh, I think in 2 Kings, maybe where there's a, something about gold and it says gold, gold. It repeats itself. It's trying to say it's really, really good gold, but the English didn't translate it that way. Or it's like you fell into a deep, deep, a deep pit, and it actually goes pit, pit in the Hebrew because it's showing that it's a deep, deep pit. Does that make sense? But here that we, we translate it holy, 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 and three times was never used. Why? Because it was so other. The magnitude of it is beyond comprehension. Nobody said something three times. And so that's who God is. He is so other. And notice that the glory of who he is and his holiness and otherness is filling the temple. And glory, this idea of glory is used. And he, um, just a funny word. I mean, it translates heavy, but what is, I mean, something that means a heaviness to it, but really somebody says, what is the glory of God? What does that really mean? Have you ever tried to really explain what is the glory of God? One of the best efforts I've seen made is one theologian described it in this way. He said, imagine the total perfections of all of God's attributes and in who they are and what they are and the weight of that. So think of his love, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his holiness. And all of those he's holy and set apart. And they're abounding without end in his power and his goodness and all those things. Just take all of those things and put them together. And just try to like think nuclear power. And you put them together and boom, whatever comes out of all of that perfection and all of that holiness, that's the weight, that's the gloriness, that's the cloud of who we are. And it's so much so when God's reality and God's presence hits things, it makes quakes. His reality, who he is, is heavier than everything else around him. So that's why in the Bible we see earthquakes, wind on Mount Sinai. It tells us when Moses was there that the ground was shaking, that the mountains were trembling because the presence of God, although it was in that bush and there with him and it was veiled in some way, yet his presence is heavier, right? Why in the upper room with the disciples did, his, did the ground shake while they were there and Jesus is in his presence? Where else did the ground shake? Do you remember? When he was crucified. And darkness came and the ground shook when his presence is there. So the only conclusion that you and I could ever have if we see God in this way is to have, draw the same conclusion that Isaiah said. 
And he said, woe to me. In verse 5. The weight and the beauty of all of who he is. He says, woe. That's a word that prophets would use to curse things. And he turns it on himself. And he says, woe, curse be to me. And then what does he say? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm a people of, um, among people of unclean lips. And what he becomes really aware of is that, remember, so there's lots of meaning to that, right? Jesus will come on the scene and say that the mouth and the tongue is connected to the heart. So the very being of who you are and who you are inwardly, he's saying, I think, when he says that, the, that my lips are unclean, he's also saying that I was called to be a prophet, and the very thing I'm good at, I think I'm not good at. It needs cleansing. But the other thing is, is that the nature, my tongue is connected to who I am, and the very presence of who I am in this presence is that I am ruined and I am cursed. And guess what? I'm just like everybody else around me in every direction I look. I'm among a people of unclean lips. So listen, Grace Church, if we ever draw the conclusion that we're the saviors or that people, we're better, or the way people walk around and they feel like we're elder brothers and we look down on them, we have lost sight of the ocean. The riptide rip is coming. And Isaiah, in the presence of God, he's clear on who he is. I'm just like everyone else. Unless God does something. Now, we could go on and on the nature of sin. But here's what he concludes. Look, he doesn't say, give me, all right, God, let me, let me read the Bible and do a few things and to fix this situation. He doesn't say, give me three steps to get out of this. His conclusion as a man before God is, I'm hopeless. I'm powerless. He doesn't even hint at the idea of fixing the problem because he knows he can't. If you're a follower of Christ, you, you had no way of ever saving yourself. The only reason, if you have any inkling of belief and now a follower of Christ and being changed, it was because you were hopeless and someone rescued you. In the moment of that being overwhelmed and hopelessness, who, 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 who works first? Who acts? God does. One of those angels, maybe their readiness, they're coming. And look what they do. They take a tongue from an altar, and God does initiate it. Now remember, who is God, who is man? God is other and holy, and his glory fills the earth. Man is sinful and will be cursed in the presence of this God. But God in his mercy initiates the solution. And a perfect being comes down from heaven. Do you see that? Remember, this was a big story that we're talking about. The old, this is foreshadowing of Christ, who will be the ultimate perfect being, better than the angel, the one who created the angels, will come down and deal with our problems. But this angel, this perfect being, takes a tongs. He can't even touch what happens on the, it's so holy, the fire that's happening on there. He can't do anything. He can't even touch it. He has to take it. And on the altar, notice all the symbolism. At the altar, in the throne, in the temple, our lives have to be dealt with. And there on the altar is the place for our solution. And it's a fire. And it's a coal. And it will be from the altar is the place where our salvation will come. Guess what? Jesus will be the one. He's not only the one who comes down, he's the one who will be on that altar. And most throughout the Old Testament at this point, fire has meant consummate, it had meant wrath, and they're understanding that. But here it begins to have, take on a meaning of cleansing. Like, what? Out of wrath and what ought to destroy me? I'm going to be cleansed? And where does it come where does he touch him? He tells him, he touches him in the lips. This isn't just make you behaviorally better. He's saying, I'm changing you from the inside out. Your whole being, I'm making you alive. 
And what does he speak to him and say? He says, your guilt, your sins are taken away. So in that moment when we're hopeless and, you know, and the world wants to say, hey, I just want to know a God of love and I just want to know him. He is a God of love, but he's also a God to be feared and who is holy. And even if he was only love, his love would destroy you because it would be so perfect than your love. Do you see that? But he's so much more than love. And he is love. And he's all those things. And then it comes, and in that moment, when it seems like we should be destroyed, he acts so quickly and so definitively, and then he speaks. He's not quiet, and the angel says, your sins are forgiven. He puts a benediction over you and me forever. This throne room God does it for us and speaks who is true, what is true of us. Your sins are taken away. Now listen, the, the glory of who God is, the, the weightiness of who he is, if he is just an idea to you, if he's not reality, if, if he's just an idea and he fits into your, the compartments of your life, then your glory is more weightier than his. It ought to have an effect. But who he is, people who encounter him and the weightiness of who he is, it affects them. It creates ripple because it's so powerful. It's so different. It's not this idea you're trying to get into your mind and hope he helps me with things. He comes and he changes them because his glory is that moment. And look what he says, here am I, send me. He just says, I can't believe what you've just done for me. In your grace and your mercy, I will do it. Do you know what job, Isaiah, we didn't read the rest of the verses. It's a terrible job. They don't listen. He even tells them they're not going to listen to you. It's going to be terrible. You're going to die. They're going to, you're given a job. It's going to be difficult and hard. And you know what? He didn't care. Why? Because he's encountered the real God. It's not, a, it's not an idea. An idea. You can't make it through difficult things. You can't make it through death. You can't make it through, through the darkness. If he is, but it's, this is the real deal. And he doesn't care what he encounters. He's still ruling. I've encountered him. If it, therefore, he must rule whatever I'm going through. Jesus would, would take the weight of that wrath. The weightiness of that that was deserved for Isaiah and for you and me. He would let that quake, that earthquake land on him. So that you and I might have life. And might enjoy the beauty of the ocean in its fullness and the splendor, and honor its power, and respond to its power with hope and great need. So that ought to be a great segue to the table. Let me pray. And God, would you help us to... Um, you have mercy on us and reorient us to your, the beauty of who you are. And forgive us. Forgive me. I'm deeply impacted by the very words that have come out of my own mouth. Would you let us see you for who you are? Be mindful of who we are and our desperate need of you and see the amazing gracious act of you saving us. 
would you help us to reorient us that we we are not just the beauty of this thing is that you it would have been enough but the scriptures begin to expand that we are your children and you're our father and the king becomes a father and we're a part of a family and we eat at your table and we're just like Mephibosheth we couldn't we're crippled and we shouldn't even be at this table but we eat at the king's table So God, would you help us to enjoy this meal and enjoy in, in that way? And would you help us to also be so impacted that it would reorient our whole lives again and again, that we would keep oriented it around the beauty of who you are, the king that you truly are, and the gracious king who is our father.